Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week, we talk through a biblical passage or topic, offer some insight and hope to point us to the Lord and His place in our lives. We also have interactive questions available for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry here at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we are in the middle of the famous parable found in Luke chapter 15, often referred to as the prodigal son. This week, we will read and discuss the interactions between the son, the father, and the community which occur when the younger son does return home. Last week, we saw how the young man devised a plan, this proposal, that if adopted by the father, would rescue him from perishing and allow him to slowly rebuild his place in the home and community again. We read in Luke fifteen seventeen through 19, as he was in a far country and feeding pigs in a time of famine, It said, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It was all carefully thought out and rehearsed, but when he got to the edge of town, His father came running out to him and there embraced him and kissed him, which is a sign of forgiveness in that culture. And in this wildly unexpected welcome display by the father and his incredible unconditional love there in front of the son, then we see the son repented. He truly changed his mind, and he was willing now to be found. He abandoned his careful plan and collapsed into the father's love and acceptance. Stunned and overwhelmed by the father's love, he then states his unworthiness, and he says yes in response. The younger son's repentance is triggered by the father's love. And then, in that embrace, the son recited his adjusted speech, altered by his repentance. Already received and accepted, he now states his sin and his unworthiness to be called his son, and he deliberately omits the third and fleshly demand that he had, make me a hired servant, an utterance that would be totally incongruent now with the circumstances he finds himself in. You see, the point we mentioned last time Forgiveness proceeds or precedes repentance. Forgiveness precedes repentance. Love comes first. Unconditional love doesn't wait for the correct response. It produces it. Grace comes first. And the younger son here relinquishes control amidst the father's love. His plan that was carefully crafted is now irrelevant. 
Well, throughout our story, I've also been inserting how the Pharisees likely were thinking or what they might be saying as they heard Jesus tell this story. And we know that they would be outraged here. <laughs> this would be the best way to describe them now. They would be standing to the side and angry. What? What? Man, first this father is running. What a disgrace. Respectable men don't run. And then next... Well, this is just wrong. This embrace, this acceptance, we don't understand it at all. That no-good kid doesn't deserve this at all. We're shocked. He should be groveling and begging. This is offensive. Well, recall how last time I asked you to close your eyes and picture this moment, this embrace. We can just see the father and the son and this emotional embrace, and we can hopefully just zoom in and see the son's face. First, some surprise, but then we can see his demeanor and, and his overwhelming just being stunned by this goodness and kindness in the father's face. The expression of this is my son, he has returned. There is consent to be loved in that son's face. And the father is looking at his son saying, you're the one that I love. And the son is compliant. What is the point of the story? Who is the hero of the story? It's the father. And it's his love. Not you, not me, not our confession, not the son's confession. Remember, the atonement is not the central theme of this parable, nor is the act of faith. The central theme in this story is the Father's love and the celebration when the sinner is found and restored. The cross and faith are implied, obviously, they're, but they're not the focal point. The Father's love here is the focal point. This is how God sees sinners. Jesus is wanting to communicate this to both the sinners who he was eating with and the Pharisees who were objecting. And so the spotlight now is on the Father as he embraces his Son, and this is the highlight of the story. And what does the Father's love mean? What does it do to the Son? We see that it melts him. And now let's return to Luke 15 and see what happens next, this time in verses 15, chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. We read, actually beginning in verse 20, he arose, he came to his father when he was still a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. As he tells his servants to do these things, and then he says, And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Well, the father, first we see in chapter 15, verse 22, reconciled his son uh, to relationship with him and to his rightful identity. He's a son. It starts with the word but. But is a coordinating conjunction. It, and it's very helpful here because it's telling us there's a contrast. We're linking the two complete main thoughts one to the other. And we have, I am no longer worthy to be called your son on one side, but and then we have the father and his three instructions, his three actions that he's going to bring about that all confirm, no, you are my son. The father is not interrupting the son here. That would not be in the flow. But means that instead of no more worthy to be my son, no, he's going to, with an exclamation mark, say, you are my son. You see, 
The father gets no pleasure out of the fact that he was in the right. He has no need to rehearse the things that the son has failed in. He has no desire to remind the son of his unworthiness. He has no time for the who's to blame here lecture and the now what are we going to do to fix it checklist. No, it's already fixed. <laughs> he does not demand an apology or an explanation. He does not inspect for fruits of true repentance in his son. He does not even simply agree with what the son said. Nor does the father want our religious work for it and pay it off nonsense. What he wants is us, for us to be united with him in position and then in practice. So the father said to his servants, the word here, servants, is doulos, the term for house servants or the lower status servants, the slaves that live in the house for just room and board. Not the same term used earlier that the son wanted to use for being a day laborer, a hired servant. That's a higher status. So he said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Probably his own robe used for only very special occasions like weddings or something. Put a ring on his hand. This would indicate the signet ring, the family status a ring of family status. And having that ring carried authority. You could use it to stamp things and even be able to have uh, transactions approval and so forth. So it's a family status ring. And sandals on his feet, because servants were barefoot, but sons would wear sandals. So all three then define him as a son. That's his proper identity. That's who he is. And this is why the father accepts him. The basis of acceptance is in his sonship. This is my son. He's my son, not a servant. And the father does all of this quickly and in public. So all can see him give honor to his son. The community then can see the father has forgiven, he is restoring, and he's going to celebrate. And he says, bring the fatted calf here and kill it in verse 23. This is the fourth instruction, and this one's related now to the celebration and rejoicing that will follow. The son has been restored as son, and now we will have celebration. And there's even a sense of haste here. Go kill the fatted calf, bring it here. Even perhaps an emphasis on the here, the place where the reconciliation occurred. Now let's think of those poor Pharisees again. They must be beside themselves as this story continues to go on. What? They're agitated now, really angry. Oh, I can't believe it. They're even yelling. And they're speaking to Jesus directly now like he's the one doing this. This isn't just a story. They're mad at Jesus. This is unthinkable, they say. How could you take your robe of honor and place it on this no good son? He comes back empty-handed, full of shame, smelling like swine, and you run to embrace him. How could you? What a fool. How humiliating. We despise you. How can you put your robe on his back? How can you put sandals on his filthy feet without washing them? How can you put a ring on his finger and give him honor again? You didn't even let him offer to be a servant. He didn't even have to grovel. May you be smitten by God for telling us this nonsense. You're a disgrace and a fool and deserve whatever happens to you. This is outrageous. This story offends us to our core. And it doesn't make sense. So there's tension. 
There was rejoicing, though, in the story with the community. Let us eat and be merry. Us, that's all who were there, the community, the corporate celebration, friends and family. And the fatted calf needs to be eaten immediately. You don't wait for three days. It will be eaten that evening. And it would be a large amount, of, enough to feed the village. And the Father's lead now shapes the community's perspective, forgiveness and reconciliation. And so now they support it as they join in at this extravagant love of the Father. The younger son, he is not the honored special guest. The father is, just like the other two parables. They will celebrate the goodness of the father and his willingness to forgive that evening. They will celebrate with him and his reconciliation that he has made with his son, and they will celebrate the honor of this loving father. The younger son will be there in attendance, and he'll be accepted there, but he's not the hero nor the focus. But the father explains, we will, let's eat and be merry. For this, he says in the text, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, there's relational life again, which is the issue. When we think of first hand salvation, there's new life and fellowship that accompanies it following that becoming alive. How else would dead and alive make any sense? You're speaking of relational or fellowship life. He wasn't literally dead or literally resurrected, but it's in this spiritual sense. This is in keeping with the first two parables. Something was found, something was, excuse me, is lost, something then is found, followed by celebration. And repentance is the acceptance or is of being found. The younger son has been found father just said it. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, when we think of getting saved, possessing eternal life, meeting the Lord for the first time, we call that first tense salvation, being saved from the penalty of sin, namely eternal separation. The son was lost. He was estranged from God. He wasn't knowing uh, this is the example that's been given. And you and I, when we get saved, before we get saved, we're lost. We don't know for sure where we stood before the Lord. We were aware of our sin. We knew we weren't consistent. There were issues. And then we see that then you begin to see that God, he is love. And he so loved the world, including you and me. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. And all of your sin is placed there, every last one, so that now there is no more barrier. No wall between you and the Lord. You are the one that he loves, and he is seeking. So will you be found? Well, how do I get found? Allow his love to encompass you and say yes as he embraces. You change your mind. You see that he loves you, that Christ died for you, that your sins have been forgiven. He is resurrected. He is giving life. You change your mind. You believe it. Whosoever, John 3.16 says, believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You don't have to make promises. You don't make big commitments to him. You don't have to impress him. Clean yourself first. No works whatsoever. You believe. He is your creator. He knows you and he wants you and he has demonstrated his love for you. So will you be found? by saying yes to his unconditional love and to his grace and his offer of life through his death and resurrection. Undeserved kindness. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us, by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves. The salvation is a gift of God, not of works, 
lest anyone should boast. So at a point in time, you put your faith in Christ and you have life. You have relationship, you have connection, and that's what we see with the Son here. We can apply this easily to second tense as well, though, because it's the same way for one who is saved but has gone astray. The Christian who also needs to be restored to relational harmony and relational life again to be found, even though they have eternal life. It's the daily walk. And restoration to him comes the same way, by faith, not by works, not pledges, not promises. The son's confession, in fact, here was irrelevant to the life, the restoration he received. His plan, his hustle was all for naught. It was all pre-embrace or pre-hug. Before his realization of the sheer goodness of the Father's love, he had his plan. But now, in the midst of the Father's unconditional acceptance of him, he changes his mind and he realizes the Father's total acceptance of him as a son. And there's harmony again. So you see, for the Christian that's gone astray, it's the same way. You come to him by faith and embrace and respond to the love he is demonstrating and showing you by saying yes, and you are found. You are where you belong. Like the sheep away from the flock in the first parable, the coin away from the other coins in the second parable, the son was away from his father and family. And now he is found. And so they began to be merry. And they were to eat and be merry. And there was music and there was dancing, as we know from the verse coming up. So we see there is mutual joy and merriment between like-minded believers. This relationship with God is good. It reminds us of how John puts it in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 on a chapter that's dealing with fellowship with the Lord. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, his readers, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so we see fellowship is clearly in the picture here, that there's community, there's celebration in community. And so we understand then that this is part of the consistent with all three parables. They began to be merry. Now, what does the prodigal have to dance about? Music and dancing, by the way, we don't have to qualify it. It was just good, okay? So what does this prodigal have to dance about? Well, not his performance and not his plan, because he gave up on that. He can celebrate that his father loves him in spite of what he has done. I'm dancing because of who the father is. I'm doing the grace dance, he could say. And they began to be merry, a happy celebratory scene. Gladness fills the heart in good times. And this is a good place to pause now and to look and say, uh, say some things about God's grace. As we see this story come to this part of its conclusion, there'll be another part now next time that we'll see about the older brother. But what can we see about grace here? Grace cannot connect with the one who promises to try harder, as that's what the son was intending to do. Grace connects only with those who've given up, as that is what the son eventually did when he was overwhelmed by the love of the father. 
The young prodigal returned with some semblance of control, and he had his plan. He was going to make his demand. And the father's grace poured out on him and wrestled him from this control, and he ran out of efforts on options and hustle, and yet it was wonderful. Grace isn't a nice option or a possibility. Grace is everything. There's a poem written by some Middle Eastern saint many, many centuries ago called A Thousand Serious Moves. Here's what it says. What is the difference between your existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think You have a thousand serious moves. I hope you don't think you have a thousand serious moves, but you can burst out in laughter at this amazing love and say yes. But wait, suppose since the story ends that night, what's happening the next day? You know, the party is ended, it's early in the morning, and as people start waking up and getting on with the new day, they realize that boy has left again before sunrise. Would the father wait again and look for his son and forgive him again if he returns? And if so, how many times? Seven? Maybe 70? At what point does a jilted father claim his dignity and write the son off? And the answer from Christianity is never. The prodigal can never outrun the love of the Father. Grace, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You see, friends, you are not measured by the good you do, but by the grace you accept. And your acceptance with God is not contingent on how hard you are trying to change. That's why Jude 21 reminds us, keep yourselves in the love of God. Of God. John's way of saying that same statement is to abide. Just stay there. Just stay in that hug and that embrace. God is steady. May we have a childlike faith and willingness to remain there. Unconditional love doesn't wait for the correct response. It produces it. Grace comes first. So while God delights in your love for him, you were not created to love him. You were created to receive his love, to be loved and to have this harmony and peace and relationship with him. Let's say the father wakes up early and there's this messy house. It was a good night, starting to get, going to have a good day. And he goes to the younger son's room, his room in the house where the family lives. And his room is empty. And father finds him across the way in the other part of the house where the servants' quarters are. Finds that young son sleeping on the floor in the servants' quarters. What are you doing here, son? Oh, I am so unworthy. Oh, father, I don't deserve this. You are so good to me. I can't, I ha- I can't take this. I'll, I'll be here in the servants' quarters. He knows the father's love but he's not abiding in it if that was the case. 
Somehow he's a, a, he's scared of it. He's wanting to try and balance it or something. You see, we were created to receive his love, not resist it, not try to qualify it. It is grace. It is undeserved. This relationship that we have then with the Lord, it comes through response, response of faith, faith in the Father, faith in light of his love, his goodness, his grace, and how we naturally struggle with this untethered grace. It's so different than our normal thinking. And unfortunately, even as believers, those who are saved and are Christians and have tasted grace and have seen the Lord is good, have responded at times before. This grace still confronts our natural instincts and our natural perspectives. Oh no, we need to slow this grace train down, we might say. Don't, don't, we don't want to get too wild, too out of control. As again, this applies to Christians. They know grace. They've been saved by grace. But it's like, oh, there's a lot of grace here. Lots. Got to be careful. In fact, that's some of the warnings we might even hear. I'm just going to finish with a few of them. Like one, you have to be careful. About what? Well, you could fall into license. You know, too much grace. Should sin abound? Let's just, you know, let's sin abound. Grace abounds. That's true, you could. But then... You'd also have to be careful about the other side, wouldn't you? Legalism. Both are very real and present dangers, trying to qualify and put everything in a box. And no, don't do this, don't do that, that and rules. So it sure seems like we tend to be way more worried about license than about being legalistic or becoming a Pharisee. I dare say we offer many more warnings about license than we do about legalism. What if you do go too much in the license direction? You're going too far over there. Watch it. Whoa, what's the remedy? Wouldn't this remedy be the same as if you went too far toward legalism? So the remedy is the same for either. It's grace. See how the Father loves. See his wild, unrestrained goodness coming at you. What if someone who is clearly out of it who's full of license and sin and they're just out there and they're miserable and they're doing wrong, what do you do if you have a chance to talk to them? Do you take away their liberty? Or do you threaten them? God's angry with you. He's going to watch out. Or wouldn't we want to bring them grace, the one thing that will work in their life, whether they're on the license extreme or the legalism extreme? Why lecture them about their sin, their failure, their shame, their poor testimony? Don't you think they already know this? Don't you think they're already aware of it? Tell them something they don't know. Tell them grace. That's what clearly has been forgotten. That's what they've lost sight of. God's love for them, his patience for them, his care for them, his concern for them, his desire for them, that he's waiting for them. He wants them to respond to him. Get in the hug. He is not done with you. Let some love overwhelm them. Give them something to respond to. Preach the embrace and show them Jesus. Show them grace, how there is where there is hope. Tell them what's encouraged you lately. Share a verse, something, but talk to them like they matter. And they're not losers and deadbeats. They're children of God. Don't belittle them. Stand by them. So instead of being down on them, seek to lift them up. Now, another warning we might hear is you need to be aware of your sins. This grace is good, but you still have to be constantly aware of your sins. Yes, he died for all your sins, and all your sins are forgiven. 
But because of that, you still need to have constant introspection, is what we might hear. A backhanded spiritual narcissism inevitably leading to some degree of self-loathing. If I'm constantly looking at my life and my sin, I'm kicking myself, I get discouraged, I'm such a failure, I'm a loser. When will I ever get better? Will I ever grow? Well, hey, of course you sin. That's as real as the sun rising every day. And it's true of every one of us. So now what? You know, I'm going to use kind of a gross uh, or a whatever uh, illustration. Pretend you defecated in a room, in a room. And then you just keep staring at it, always looking at it, walking in circles around it. Look at that. Look what I did. I'm so down on myself. I'm such a fool. There it is. Uh, isn't there anything better to focus on? Isn't there something better to stare at? How about looking across the room? Look there. There's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's fresh bouquet of flowers and beautiful colors and smells. Look at that. The Lord moved toward him, his goodness, his grace, his unconditional acceptance, his holiness, his goodness, his purity, his righteousness. How about his patience or his power? And as you get your eyes on him, you can get encouraged. You can have hope and he loves you. Or you can just stay and keep your eyes on your sin and over and over review your life and your day and your sin and then get discouraged and then get frustrated and then spin your wheels. Listen, you're not being scored on how well you stay within the lines as if life is a big coloring contest no how about you are though by getting looking at the big picture step back and look at that picture you do get to walk with him you do get to know him you do get to enjoy him he is with you every step of your life he is patient with you he doesn't vanish when you screw up he doesn't hide until you admit it or nor does he get mad at you so as you focus on him, you see he indeed is good. Taste and see that he is good. And by the way, does this constant introspection and evaluating and sin in your life, does it even work? With all this introspection and sin focus and analysis, do you ever, after confessing and so forth, still wonder sometimes in the back of your mind, did it work? Was I sincere enough? Did he hear it? Did I do it right? Did I really miss maybe a sin? Did I forget one? Did, did I really mean this? Am I really that tore up about my sin? How soon is it before I do it again? Have I crossed some frequency limit for the same sin? Oh, God has got to be disappointed. Are you resisting in the struggle much? Am I really fighting it? And so with all this effort and all this self-evaluation, there's still this squeaks of doubt. Why? Why all this subjectivity? Why is there a lot of us in this equation? How could this be remedied? Taking us out of the equation. Friends, work your thinking, work your theology back to the hug in Luke 15 of the father and his returned son. Respond to him. First John 4, 16 reminds us, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Work yourself back to that. As Jude said, keep yourself in the love of God. Consider the prodigal in the father's arms. He's made aware of his love, his goodness, his total acceptance. He knows, and he personally responds to that love and to his father. He believes that leads to his change of mind, his yes. He is humbled by his indiscriminate grace, and then he acknowledges his unworthiness. 
and it is in response to love and to grace. It's not a checklist item. In fact, his confession triggers nothing in the father. The father didn't even have it come out. It never got there because he pulled it back in response of the father's love toward him. The son realized he was in relationship, it was spontaneous, and he can respond in the arms of the father by saying yes. So we've looked at you need to be aware of your sins. You have to be careful. Another is you need to be responsible. You know, do the right thing. Many believers, personal experience with God is like a coloring contest. I mentioned a coloring earlier. Keep at it. It's common to spend the bulk of our life, uh, you know, living as if the rest of Christianity is about how good a colorer I can be. Stay in the lines. Careful. Stay in the lines. And what are the lines? Usually extra biblical community standards. You know, your music, your wardrobe, your politics, your unsafe friends, your lack of growth, your hustle. Stay in the lines. Watch your testimony. Do what is right. Listen, you are not called to live scrupulously, but abundantly. Our diligence, our focus is all toward him in the relational sense. Being in the hug, knowing and enjoying your status. I'm a child. Compels you in your outward life. We don't have to impress how can you get closer to God by doing more to please him than Christ has already done? So can't we just believe that and stay in the embrace, abide there? Yes, you do need to do the right thing, but is the right thing the main thing? You are not responsible to perform for him. You are not responsible to do the right things. You are not responsible to constantly inspect yourself for blemish. You are responsible to relate to him and to know him. For without him, you can do nothing. And the right thing is to keep yourself in the love of God, to abide in him. You know, I was thinking of Moses and the children of Israel in, uh, when they were uh, in the wilderness, and uh, Moses was being overwhelmed. He had to constantly try to, to sit down with and help people out and make judgments and do all this. And his, his father-in-law said, hey, this isn't right. You need to pick a bunch of men. And in Exodus 18, verse 21 and 22, he tells us, you shall select from all the people able men. Moses, do this. Men that... Fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Let them judge the people at all times. These are really able men. They are men of strength. They're God-fears. They're men of truth. They're haters of covetousness. Now, that's a pretty good list of character traits. However, how many of these fine individuals that Moses did indeed choose, how many of them made it into their inheritance, the promised land that was set out before them as a group, Zero, not one. Not one made it into the promised land, which is a picture of faith rest in Hebrews 4. They all died in the wilderness. The wilderness of responsible balance. The wilderness of sin awareness. The wilderness of carefulness. These were good, upstanding citizens and men, but they fell short in their relationship with God. Perhaps too focused instead on being good men, doing the right thing, leading, but then failing somewhere to be walking with him. Because remember, without Jesus, you can do nothing. They must have missed that divine encounter. They didn't enter their rest. They had externals, but not the internals. If you're a universe observer looking in, what part of grace, God's one-way, constant, unmerited, undeserved, unconditional love would be considered responsible? God, look, you'd say, the majority of all these people down there, they aren't going to respond to you. They aren't going to care. They won't love you back. What are you doing doing this exhaustive, extravagant love on the world? 
Aren't you glad there were no responsible but grace-averse voices telling God to give up on us? So we hear this, be careful, be aware of your sins, be responsible. It's all a non-grace focus trying to slow down the grace train, putting emphasis on you and your effort. Get out and do and be and do good and so forth. The last one is quickly look at, you have to keep it balanced. How do I keep grace balanced? Balanced with what? Law? Works? You do realize the two do not mix, not at all. Completely incompatible. You don't balance the pants of grace with a responsible law shirt. Galatians 3, 1 through 3 says, Oh foolish Galatians, Paul says, Who's bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? He says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you are now made perfect by the flesh? doesn't work that way. Who's bewitched you? The word means misled by smoke and mirrors like magic act arts. <laughs> a nice trick. The legalist is doing a magic act, the, a card trick, moving the cards, talking fast, it all looks good, and then suddenly there's this insertions of some law, some human hustle, some external standards. You can't balance grace. How do you balance something that's unconditional? How do you balance something that comes from God? It's not even ours to mess with. So my final questions would be, why would you want to? What is it about his love and his grace that moves you to reduce it? What are you afraid of? Is it that you are not in control? Why not move toward that grace and that love? Why not be embraced? Why not say yes? Why would you want qualifiers and safety valves? Why does this grace seem to intimidate? Instead, friends, why not plunge into it? Hebrews 13.9, I'll close. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your amazing and wild, fierce, constant love and grace. Thank you for accepting us totally, unconditionally. And we thank you that we can find eternal life only in you through Christ by faith. And that once we're saved, we then find daily life the same way through Christ by faith. So thank you for your love, for your hug of us as we see it, the Father and the Son in our story. And may we keep ourselves in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you appreciate this podcast, you can help us out tremendously by rating it favorably on your podcast app. Feel free to recommend it to others or share it on your social media. That would be awesome. And email any comments, questions, or whatever you might have to us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always.